Well, good morning, church. It's uh, good to see you and welcome all those at home that were watching. Uh, we also say good morning to you. You're still part of EBC, even if you can't make it in this room. But you know, it is refreshing and encouraging each Sunday to see some uh, new faces, those who haven't been around and are now making their way back. And, uh, you know, I think I probably said it to some of you individually, you just made my day. And, and I mean that. I mean that. It's so good. Uh, to see uh, us gather together and more and more uh, coming back to that place. There was a man on death row who was asked if he had any final requests uh, before being executed. And the inmate, the man on death row answered, you know, I would like to have a huge piece of local fresh watermelon. And the warden said, you must be kidding. This is December before we see any sign of local watermelons. And the inmate replied, that's okay, I don't mind waiting. I don't mind waiting. You know, under most circumstances, stop light in the early hours of the morning with no one in sight on hold by a customer service representative. The average person do while you wait at the doctor's office after your scheduled appointment. The last person who ought to be speaking about waiting I get antsy when things don't go as quickly as I would like. But when it comes to what God has for us, the word for this morning is wait. Wait for the victory. It will be worth the wait. And how well are you doing as you wait? Grumbling? Growing weary? Well, look with me in your Bibles, and I hope you have them with you, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, look in your Bibles, on your phone, whatever you use, but follow along with me in Daniel chapter 7. Now this morning, as we continue in our series on Daniel, we begin the second half of the book. The first half of the book, uh, the first six chapters, is the more familiar material. You know, Daniel in the lion's den, the three guys in the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar being turned into some big hairy beast. I mean, good veggie tales kind of material. Then there's chapter 7. Things turn kind of strange. Daniel, the interpreter of dreams, has a dream himself. And you know, and if it weren't for the fact that this account is in the word of God, we might conclude that Daniel needs to lay off that spicy food before going to bed. But what we have recorded for us here is a vision from God. It is not a, a, a caffeine intake problem for Daniel. It's not uh, Daniel's unresolved issues from his past that brings this dream on. No, it's, it's God communicating to his servant Daniel of what will take place in the future. And as we're going to see, it's an interactive dream as Daniel asks for some help in removing some of the fog of understanding as to what this dream all means. Now, my hope for today is that in the midst of the fog and understanding all the details here, we can see the shore, we can see our destination. Now, this is not going to be easy material to work through. I'm going to tell you that one up front. But our lives are tied to what's written in chapter 7. 
It has everything to do with living out our days here on earth. It addresses how we are to respond when the darkness closes in, when we feel defeated, when being oppressed to the point of weariness. And so the main thought for today is is this. I just want to get it out there up front. The main thought for today is God is at work in our waiting. God is at work in our waiting. Now, it's best in a chapter like this to give you some principles that surface from within all the details, kind of a a big picture approach, okay? So principle number one, principle number one is above all the human chaos, the ancient of days runs the world with power and purpose. Above all the human chaos, the ancient of days runs the world with power and purpose. All right, follow along with me. Daniel chapter seven, verse one. In the first year, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Now, I just need to remind you the timing of this dream. Daniel is God's prophet in a time of the nation Judah's captivity. And a nation that believed that God had special purposes in mind for them as his chosen people. And they're kind of wondering, what in the world's going on here? They're in captivity for 70 years. Well, it's in times like these, away from their homeland, living in a foreign land under the rule of pagan evil kings, that they may have their doubts about God's plan. You ever have doubts about God's plan? Well, they, I'm sure, did. They're just starting to wonder if God maybe had forsaken them and permanently set them aside. Their own land was in shambles. Their temple was destroyed. The walls that were to protect them of their city were, were, were broken down. By all appearances, they were a non-existent nation. From their perspective, their future is very bleak. And God comes at this very critical time near the end of their 70-year captivity and gives them a vision of the future. And in essence, the message really ought to be clear. What God is saying here is that I'm not through with you. And not only that, I have a glorious future in store for you. Just wait. Just wait. And so the message of hope comes to Daniel in a dream. And by the way, placement of this dream here in chapter 7 as well as in chapter 8 is really before chapter 6. That's really the placement of it is before chapter 6, you know, when Daniel was in the lion's den. This comes before that. But Daniel is an eyewitness of the events of chapter 7. We're going to see that, uh, that he's an eyewitness all the way to the rest of the book to chapter 12. What was written in third person is now written in first person from this point in Daniel to the rest of the book. And so verse 2, Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked... And there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. And so he starts and he continues all the way down to verse 8. Daniel tells us what he saw in his dream. Now let me summarize his dream this way. The sea, four beasts, ten horns, the little horn, arrogant words, the ancient of days, judgment on the nations, the son of man, God's kingdom on earth. There's the summary of the dream right there. So now you know. I won't leave you quite there. I'm going to pull out some highlights, though, of this incredible vision. Going back to verse 2, Daniel first sees 
winds churning up the great sea. Now, in ancient thinking, the sea was a scary place. They believed that it was in the sea where sea monsters lived. Often we see that in in Scripture. The sea is kind of portrayed for us uh, as evil. And so as Daniel looks out from the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, there is great chaos in the world. And I thought to myself, we too, as we stand and look out, we see utter chaos around the globe. Interestingly, though, man looks at the world and the nations and the superpowers and, 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 and man sees achievements and advances and there, are, there is that and, 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 and progress. But God doesn't see things as man does. God has Daniel looking out at human history and what Daniel sees portrayed to us in the churning up of the great sea. He sees chaos. He sees empires, kingdoms that are out of control. Empires, kingdoms that are represented in the dream as four beasts. Daniel sees here, if you recall, uh, is very similar, um, almost exactly, to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 with the enormous statue of various metals. And I said then when we were looking at Daniel chapter 2 that the four metals of the statue represented four kingdoms. Now, most writers commenting on chapter 7 determine that the four beasts mentioned here are the same four kingdoms of chapter 2. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Check your history books. It's there. And I'd I'd agree what we see in 7. It's the same as what we see in 2 in terms of the four kingdoms. Now, rather than get into why Babylon is depicted as a lion with eagle's wings. And many do. You can go look at it yourself. People have a lot of fun with that. Or rather than get into why the bear has uh, three ribs in his mouth between its teeth, people have a lot of fun with that one. I just think it shows that he's just eating something and we have something stuck between his teeth. That's what I think that means. He's devouring everything. That's the image. Or, or maybe rather than get into why the uh, media Persia is pictured as a leopard with four wings and four heads. You know, it's the fourth beast that gets the most attention. It is this fourth beast that was more terrifying than the others. It had uh, large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured everything in its path. This fourth beast was not like the other three beasts. One way that it was different is that it had ten horns on its head. And while Daniel is pondering the significance of the ten horns, an eleventh horn called the little one appears out of nowhere. This, This little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And so Daniel, he looks down the corridor of time, which is future for him, history for us, till we get to some other stuff here. Hang on. But he sees the future unfolding before his eyes, and it isn't pretty. And just in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, though, Daniel sees one kingdom after another come and go, come and go, come and go. See, no matter how powerful 
these kings and kingdoms may be for a time, there's always another more powerful, hungrier, and more determined ruler waiting in its wings. Always. And just when you can't take it anymore, when it seems as though evil is winning, we find the assurance of what Daniel sees next. This is very timely. The Ancient of Days steps in. The scene shifts to heaven. Verse 9. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000. That's a lot of zeros. These are all angels, how I take this. They all stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were opened. So, so God has been at work behind the scenes in verses 1 through 8. He now steps forward, and he sits in his rightful place as judge of all. And the God, who is called the Ancient of Days, because he has lived throughout the entire course of history, is the righteous judge who will deal with all the evil in the world, past, present, and future. His justice will prevail. It will. We have to wait for it. I don't like to wait. Not only does Daniel see the Ancient of Days take a seat in the courtroom as judge, he also sees, verse 13, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, by speaking of this as the son of man, suggests that he is human. But that it says, like the son of man, tells us there's something unique about this man. This one, like the son of man, was a uh, human being, but what all humans who were made in the image of God failed to be, this son of man was. And to know who this is, we have to look to the New Testament. In Luke's gospel alone, Son of Man, and referring uh, to Jesus, uh, is used 27 times, just in Luke's gospel. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-designation. Now in this vision, the Son of Man enters the courtroom. Verse 14, he enters the courtroom. He, Jesus, was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Now clearly, Daniel is seeing the time in the future when Jesus would be given all authority and dominion. The time when every knee will bow, every tongue confess voluntarily or involuntarily, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what it's referring to. But I don't want us to miss what the rest of verse 14 says. His dominion, his dominion, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So kings and rulers and presidents and dictators and kingdoms and and nations, they're all going to pass away. But the people of God transcend that. There is a fifth kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, that all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ will one day possess. Still with me? (laughs) We have in this one chapter the big picture 
of the future of the world, not only from Daniel's perspective, there's history for us, but other future things as we're going to see in a moment. But amidst all the uncertainties in the world, let's not miss it. God is on the throne. He is running all things. And like putting together a puzzle, you need to sometimes just take a step back once in a while to see the picture on the box. Because the picture on the box makes sense of all the pieces of all the mess that are on your table. You're going to go, I don't know how to put this together. Look at the picture. Look at the picture. See, we can, we can discuss and we can have friendly debate as to how all these pieces fit together. Sure. Just make sure to stand far enough back to see the big picture. Because honestly, sometimes we get lost in all the details and we, and we don't see the big picture. We can be a bright spot in a dark world because we know that above all the chaos in the world, the ancient of days, God himself runs things. As Corey Tamboom put it, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. All right, principle number two. Principle number two. We're not removed from opposition, but our ultimate victory is secured. We're not removed from opposition, but our ultimate victory is secured. All right, look with me at verse 15. Daniel says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. <laughs> you think? Troubled and disturbed? Just might be words to describe someone given such a dream, a vision as this. You see, seeing the future before your eyes has a way of kind of shaking you up a bit. Reminded of the story of King uh, Louis XI. He was a, a devout believer in astrology. And there was one astrologist in particular that gave him all kinds of trouble. And so the king decided that he needed to get rid of this one astrologist. He had had it with him. And so the king summoned the man to his place. And, and after first uh, uh, telling his servants, hey, you know, um, when this astrologer comes in, I'm going to give you a signal. And at that signal, I want you to throw this astrologer out the window. That's what I want you to do. Now, before giving the signal to throw this astrologer out the window, he kind of taunted the astrologer a bit and asked him, hey, you know, you claim to understand astrology and you, you know the fate of others, so tell me, so tell me at once what your fate will be and how long you have to live. And he answered, I shall die just three days before your majesty, he answered. I shall die just three days before your majesty. And so the shaken king canceled his plans. He said, I don't think I want to go through this. See, we find future things intriguing. We're obsessed with investigating. That's fine to a point, I guess. What does Daniel think of all this? It isn't intriguing. It has him shaken. It has him shaken. He says in verse 16, I approached one of those standing there, presumably an angel. And he asked him the true meaning of all this, and the angel starts giving the explanation. Verse 17, well, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. I want us to see something there, though. The, the saints of the Most High will what? Receive, receive the kingdom. They don't take it over. It's not by force. It says of Darius, the king, in chapter 5, verse 31, he took over the kingdom. That's not true for saints. We're not going to take it over. We're going to receive it. Big deal? I don't know. You can explore that some more. But all the saints, all the people of God down through the ages receives, receives the eternal kingdom. 
But Daniel, he's somewhat stuck on this fourth beast. He's still a little lost. But, unlike most men, he doesn't mind asking for directions. And so Daniel, he wants a little more information. And in verse 19, he goes, you know what? I, I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast. I need some help here. I'm a little lost. This was different from all the others and most terrifying. He goes on in verse 20. Also, I wanted to know about the ten horns on his head. About the other horn that came up. And then verse 21 tells us this one horn was waging war against the saints. Now catch this. And defeating them. Defeating them. For Daniel, he realized that what he saw had serious implications for the Jewish people, both near and in the distant future. It meant that four succeeding Gentile powers uh, would rule over Israel. It meant that they would suffer at the hand of Gentile rulers and seemingly lose. So it's understandable why Daniel's a little bit shaken by all of this. Well, yet the angel goes on to say doesn't help matters either. The angel says that this imposing, boastful 11th horn, verse 25, is going to take aim at two targets. He's going to blaspheme the God Most High, and it says he will oppress his saints. He will oppress his saints. Now that last phrase, oppress his saints, in verse 25, could be translated wear away or wear out. Wear out. As friction kind of wears out clothes or sandals. Wear out. You know, in one sense, it's easier to die for the Lord than to live for Him under constant harassment and strain. Just ask any survivors in the German Christian horror camps in Hitler's day, or many imprisoned missionaries around the world. I don't know of anything that can break the human spirit, as does continual persecution, uh, perpetual trials. I don't know of anything that can break the human spirit as some lingering illness, prolonged injustice, and just after a while, it wears us down. But we shouldn't be surprised at the tactic of the enemy, oppress, wear us down. And I don't know about you, but this past year has about worn me out. My talk often begins with the words, I am tired of. Fill in the blank. I'm just tired of it. And it's all too common for weariness to get the better of us, but it doesn't have to. You know, when you're weary, feeling small, and your tears are in your eyes. I'll dry them all, I'm on your side. Well, I don't know what your bridge is to get over your troubled waters. I think it's God's word that gets us over troubled waters. But are you a weary traveler right now? You're just kind of discouraged. What keeps us from, from being discouraged and, and overwhelmed in discouragement in these days? Well, you probably heard the story of the man who stopped to watch a Little League baseball game. And he asked one of the players sitting on the bench, the one of the little youngsters, what the score was. And the little guy said, you know, we're losing 14 to nothing, the boy answered. Wow, the man replied, you must be pretty discouraged. Discouraged, the boy said, puzzled. Why should we be discouraged? We haven't come to bat yet. <laughs> That's perspective. That's perspective. Discouraged? Well, can you see beyond the obvious 
to what is to come. We don't have all that God wants us to have yet. Who hopes for what he already has, Paul says in Romans 8. The score may seem lopsided, but God has secured our victory. There's a limit to what the opposition can do to us. Verse 25 goes on to say, the end of verse 25, the saints will be handed over to him, meaning the little horn, for a time, times and half a time. Time, times, and half a time uh, can be translated three and a half years. And for some of you, that really gets your juices going. Oh, three and a half years. I know what we're going to talk about. All right. I am going to speak to it briefly. But let's talk about this, this little horn. The, the little horn here seems to be referring to what Paul speaks of in the New Testament as a man of lawlessness or what we uh, know of as the Antichrist. And only the Antichrist, I believe, meets the qualifications of Daniel 7. At first, he'll be just another ruler, another king. He'll then rise to be greater than the horns, the rulers uh, before him. He's going to run the most absolute dictatorship the world has ever known. He can hope to change the time. It speaks of that. He'll have some success. He'll have his way in bringing suffering to God's people. But get this, only for an appointed time. That's the point of time, times, and half a time. The little horn, the antichrist, the epitome of man trying to rule apart from God, can sound off all he wants. But his opposition has a time limit. If you believe as I do, and you know after there's many who, who probably don't, that this 11th ruler, this little horn, the Antichrist, is still yet future to the time of the seven-year tribulation. The point to make is the time of opposition is a limited, God-controlled period of time. And the contrast, which is really what I think he's getting at here, the contrast is to be made with that God-controlled, limited God-controlled period of time. The contrast is made with the establishing for the kingdom of God, which is forever. It's clear. That contrast is clear. The very first word of, of verse 26 is the word, but. Contrast. But the court will sit and his power, the little horn's power, will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship him. Do you see where all this is going? What an encouragement for saints of all time. Daniel's day. And us as well. We won't escape opposition as believers, but our ultimate victory is secured. And it's all controlled by God. I, I need to go to principle three. I just don't know how long you'll wait. <laughs> principle three. No matter how bad things get, we know the end of the story. No matter, no matter how bad things get, we know the end of the story. Back a few months ago, I set my uh, DVR to record a program that my wife and I were looking forward to watching. And I set it up at a, to start at a certain time and for it to end one hour later. But being as, as clever as I am, I added in an, an extra 30 minutes beyond the end time just to ensure that, the, that I got the whole program from start to finish. What I didn't factor in was that it followed a football game 
that went longer than usual and into extended overtime. So, with great interest, we sat down to watch this show, which was a mystery. It kind of built up in suspense, and as it was preparing for this dramatic ending, it stopped. Well done. I have one job to do. We didn't see the last 10 minutes. We didn't know how it ended. We still don't. It helps to know the conclusion of a story. Church, we know the end of the story. We can be a bright spot in a dark world because we know who wins. Or, or more accurately, who has won. Do you, do you believe that? I mean, do, do our lives reflect what we believe about the future? I mean, do you ever feel like evil is winning? Have you ever felt that some evidence has been hidden and no one knows the whole truth? When the Ancient of Days holds court, the saints are justified, justice will be served, God will settle all accounts. Can you wait for it? It's worth the wait. Now I want to go back to verse 21 and 22 just for a moment here. I'm, I'm really, I am landing the plane here. Verse 21 Verse 21 says, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Now catch this. If you, you mark your Bibles, uh, underline the very next word. Uh, at least in the NIV, this is the very first word of, of, of verse 22. After it says, and defeating them until, until, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Until. I don't know, I think that's a pretty significant word here and in Scripture. Until God says enough. Until God pronounces judgment. Until God makes all wrongs right. Until. Now, you may be on the brink of defeat. You may feel worn out in waiting. You may have had enough. Listen, God will defeat the seemingly unconquerable powers that oppress his people. It will happen until God acts on behalf of those who wait for him, Isaiah 64. Daniel's not dealing with some hit or miss prediction, but the very words from the mouth of God, what God says is going to happen, is going to happen. And that's why you can say in verse 28, this is the end of the matter. It's the end of the matter. Yes, it is. No one can change God's plans. This is the end of the matter. This is how it's going to go down. No one can add to them, this is the end of the matter. This is how it's going to go down. No one's able to go any further than God allows. God's in control. Yes, this is the end of the matter. It's the end of the matter. Will you trust him? Can you trust him with your future? Can you trust in his sovereignty does your life reflect that you trust in God's sovereignty? I mean, on a cosmic scale, but also on a very personal level. Can you trust God? Because our God is at work in our waiting. We just might not always be able to see it.
You might have heard of the long-distance uh, open water swimmer Florence Chadwick. She is remembered as the only woman to swim the English Channel both ways. Well, some years ago, she attempted to swim from uh, Catalina Island to the coast of California. She's going from the island to the shore to the coast of California, and it was roughly 21 miles. She was going to swim this. Well, it was a rather rough day in the seas, but the worst feature was the fog. The fog was so thick that she could barely see the support boats that followed her. But she swam for 15 hours and 55 minutes. And even though she was being encouraged to finish, keep going, you can do this, all she could see was the fog, and she finally said, I'm done with this, take me out, I'm getting in the boat, I'm not swimming the rest of the way, I'm done. She failed to complete her mission. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore, her destination, was less than a half a mile away. <laughs> Later she was interviewed. Look, she said, I'm not making excuses, but if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I would have made it. Because all you can see right now is the fog. You've been living for a while by hope, but it's getting really hard to see the shore. Don't grow weary, church. I speak to myself. Don't grow weary. Don't quit. Know that there's a destination promised to us. Know that the shore is probably closer than you think. Persevere through the flock. Will you wait for the victory? Believe me, God is at work in our waiting. He is. Let's trust him with it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for a very difficult section. It doesn't get any easier in chapter 8. But you've, you, you've chosen to include this in your word for a reason. In all the details, Lord, I pray that we can see the big picture. We can see what it is that you are moving us towards, that you are working in our waiting, that you have it all under control, that you're running things. Because we can lose heart around that on a big scale level, but also on a personal level. So God, may we trust you in the fog, what we don't understand, to a known God who's God at all. May we trust in that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.